You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm Ankit Panda from New York. And I'm Prashant Paramaswaran from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining me, Prashant. It's good to have you back from your travels. How are you doing today? Yeah, good to be back and good to be with you. Great. So uh, as we like to do on the podcast, we're going to go a bit off the beaten path today, I think. Um, And I'm hoping it'll be an interesting discussion. Uh, Specifically, we'll be devoting this episode to talking about an extra regional power's interest in the Asia Pacific. And as listeners may know, we tend to do this, but we mostly talk about the United States, which for all intents and purposes is essentially a Pacific power. Today, we're going to talk about another state, um, a member of the Permanent Five at the UN Security Council. We'll be talking about France, and we'll be talking about French interests in the Asia-Pacific region more broadly. And there is a peg for this that we'll get into in a bit more detail as the episode goes on. Um, French President François Hollande was on a three-nation tour of Southeast Asia with visits to Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And Prashant's been following that, so we'll uh, hear from him a bit on that. But Prashant, you know, I think a good place to start would be to maybe, you know, talk a bit about why we're even bothering to do a podcast on France in the Asia Pacific. Um, you know, I mean, France used to be a great European colonial power, um, definitely has a history in the Asia Pacific region, um, certainly in Indochina, which is now uh, Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. So, uh, you know, French colonial presence in Asia is definitely a big part of where that begins. But today you look at France and uh, it is, in a sense, you know, more of an Asian nation in some ways than the United States. If you, for example, look at the Francophone population, for example, in the region, you look at uh, France's exclusive economic zone, which is the second largest in the world after the United States. So, uh, you know, for example, according to uh, 2014 data that I have here, um, you know, France... um, a French population in the Asia-Pacific region, um, adjusted citizens, has actually increased by 220% since um, the mid-90s. And, um, you know, it's it's now actually over well over 120,000, which is actually about the same size as France's population in sub-Saharan Africa, which is another area where the French have quite a few interests, um, and certainly in northern Africa as well, where there's a significant French presence. So as far as the Asia-Pacific goes, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a... Um, tertiary or peripheral interest for France. It's really primary in a sense. Um, But, you know, Prashant, I I actually wanted to ask you to uh, chime in here with something from last year. So, um, you know, you were at the Shangri-La dialogue last year in Singapore when French defense minister uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian spoke about the country's interest in the South China Sea. Could you tell us a bit about um, you know, what specifically he said back then. I thought it was a fascinating articulation of, uh, you know, French interests in the region. So um, why don't you bring us up to speed on uh, what he said last year? Yeah, I, you know, I think his the, the his top line message was uh, the fact that, uh, as you correctly pointed out, I mean, the, the case for France's, uh, in, in the case of his speech, security and defense role in the Asia Pacific, uh, is actually quite clear uh, and quite comprehensive once you start digging in. Um, whether you look at uh, the fact that, as you mentioned, you know France has the second largest EEZ in the world. Most of that is in the Indian Pacific Oceans. The fact that France has been one of the key players globally standing up for freedom of navigation. Uh, and part of this security network uh, that uh, Ash Carter mentioned at the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, last year as well. Um, and you know France has its own uh, defense and security interests in terms of defense equipment, um, uh, in terms of the dollar value of defense equipment uh, sold in the last, I think you know decade, decade and a half. It's quite significant the number of you know high level visits and meetings. I mean I think he wanted to lay out that case, but I think the the bigger issue for France, the bigger bigger challenge is 
Um, to what degree is this being reciprocated by countries in the Asia-Pacific, particularly in Southeast Asia? Mm-hmm. Um, the French and the Europeans have wanted for a long time uh, to have a greater role in institutions like the ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting uh, and the East Asia Summit. Uh, currently, the EU is a dialogue partner of, of ASEAN, and France is obviously part of the EU. Um, but uh, they want a greater role in terms of the EU being involved in some of these other institutions like ADMM+. ASEAN has resisted uh, because it feels that, you know, first of all, the European Union uh, hasn't made a case for its role politically and security-wise, as it has on the economic side and the people-to-people cultural side. Um, and then secondly, um, the fact that the European there's doubts right now about uh, you know the fact of whether the European Union is a cohesive uh, entity um, mm-hmm. and I think we'll we're sort of get into that a little bit later with respect to the French elections but I think that sort of captured the moment um, and and the speech that he was trying to deliver in, in the address no certainly I think those are all really uh, great points actually you know um, when I was doing research for this episode um, I actually came up on a very interesting statistic that you know up 40% of Southeast Asian submarine contracts and as you know some of our listeners and readers might know submarines in particular have been a proliferating technology across Southeast Asia in recent years so France is actually involved in 40% of contracts there and a uh, 20% of naval projects overall in the region. So it is a very big um, defense industrial player. And even outside of Southeast Asia, uh, you know, France and India um, have famously been mired in talks for years over the Daso Khafal, which um, India agreed to buy a, a 36 units of in early 2015 in a recently concluded deal. We'll be receiving delivery of that soon. And uh, as we discussed on the podcast with the whole episode, actually, uh, there was the Australian uh, Collins class replacement contract, which uh, DCNS, the French manufacturer, um, won out with its uh, short fin Barracuda, uh, beating out Germany's uh, ThyssenKrupp and uh, Japan's Kawasaki Mitsubishi Consortium for the Soryu submarine. Um, but, you know, I want to offer a little bit more context. I mean, so, you know, some of the territories in the Southern Pacific that France has, you know, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, the Wallace and Futuna Islands, um, Réunion in the Indian Ocean, Mayotte, Kerguelen. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, that just really shows that France um, is in so many ways really an Indo-Pacific nation, both in the Indian Ocean, both in the Pacific. Um, and it's a pretty hefty naval power as well. Um, an author and the diplomat last year, uh, Yeo Jung Chen, actually, um, you know, just painted a picture of um, the extent of French hardware in the region, which includes, uh, you know, two surveillance frigates on regular patrol, um, other patrol vessels, multi-mission ships, maritime surveillance aircraft, tactical transport aircraft, and multiple helicopters in the region. And uh, as we'll, you know, get into later on the sh- uh, on the podcast, France is actually thinking about deploying one of its powerful uh, Mistral um, amphibious assault ships to an exercise in the Western Pacific later this year, which is um, also significant. Um, and, you know, the point you brought up, Prashant, about the EU, I think, is really valid. And, you know, one of the things I left out, I guess, at the beginning of the episode when I was talking about pegs is we have an election coming up soon in France um, under a month from now, April 23rd. Um, and there is a real possibility, um, as we've seen recently, it's difficult to predict who might win an election. Uh, there is a possibility that uh, Marine Le Pen, who represents a very different sort of French leader may be elected president. And, uh, you know, she has plans to um, actually bolster France's defense capabilities quite a bit. And there's no telling, you know, how she might view the Asia-Pacific region as a um, different kind of strategic interest. The um, the main centrist candidate, Emmanuel Macron, seems to take more of a traditionalist approach where I think he wants to keep the military mostly stable and uh, keep the EU certainly in best shape. Um, you know, Marine Le Pen would look to draw France out of the Eurozone, which would certainly introduce new uncertainties that will only be amplified with uh, Brexit. And, you know, 
know, the European Union as a coherent entity is obviously a question that we're all thinking about. And uh, the EU doesn't really have a defense force, which is something that France and Germany might have to think about in future years, especially as the uncertainty around NATO might intensify, um, given what we've seen out of the Trump administration here in the United States. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, and, and also, I mean, it uh, that uh, that really is a big issue because as you're seeing the EU go through this transition, a very painful transition with uh, Brexit and some of the other uncertainties around immigration, free trade, um, and let's be frank, I mean that's you know as we've talked about before, I mean it's also affecting the United States, other countries in the world too. Um, there is a increasing convergence of uh, security interests between the EU and ASEAN and Asia more broadly. Um, whether you look at the South China Sea. Um, and France and other countries within Europe, their importance with respect to preserving freedom of navigation, or you look at uh, the Islamic State, um, and uh, you know that's affected France and Britain significantly, and uh, several Southeast Asian countries in particular um, are very interested in cooperating with um, uh, these countries. So um, you're having this uh, moment in the European Union uh, as you know. The, these urgent challenges are proving to be uh, more significant. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know, on that note, um, Prashant, why don't you, um, you know, kind of take us on a very quick kind of tour de force on what François Hollande actually achieved on this uh, very quick tour of three countries. It was like three countries in three days. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I should say Hollande, obviously, he's a French president doing this big international trip days before an election and his approval ratings, I think, are, you know, in the tank. Uh, so he's... Uh, um, not quite in a very strong position domestically. But uh, anyways, why don't you uh, just bring us up to speed on what he accomplished in these three countries? Yeah, I mean, I, I think your your top-line comment there was, was spot on uh, in terms of the fact that as Olan was, was making this trip to uh, three Southeast Asian countries, starting in Singapore and then Malaysia and Indonesia, um, you know, there were some significant agreements reached. Um, a lot of this was e- very, it was very economic heavy in terms of uh, innovation in Singapore, a number of business uh, arrangements in Malaysia, um, uh, some mention of defense uh, deals potentially, uh, particularly in Malaysia, but uh, nothing uh, specific that was agreed to. Um, but, uh, you know, as he was touring these countries, I mean, there was this persistent question, which is, uh, to what degree does he actually represent what the future of France will be? And that, as you correctly pointed out, is going to be determined um, in the election. Um, and I think this is a consistent theme that Southeast Asian countries um, have had to contend with, uh, whether it's Britain, uh, whether it's France, uh, whether it's uh, the United States. Um, so this really is um, part of a broader structural problem where um, I think from the perspective of Southeast Asia, so I, you know, I, as you pointed out, you know, I just returned from a trip to um, the Philippines, uh, and was also in you know Malaysia, Thailand, and Singapore. Um, and in all those countries, I think the the conversation, if I were to sum it up, was um, as we're seeing so much uncertainty in the external environment, what does that mean for ASEAN and Southeast Asian states? Does that mean that they should invest more? in terms of what they're doing with each other bilaterally? Does it mean that they should, uh, you know, sort of get together and, and in terms of ASEAN and multilateral engagement? Um, how much can they rely on uh, the United States and some of these other powers uh, to balance China and some of these other actors that, um, you know, are countries that are important, but uh, these uh, Southeast Asian countries are not comfortable 
engaging with these countries on their own and they would like uh you know some kind of boost from elsewhere as well so. mm -hmm. certainly and you know i think um with this upcoming election um you know with the victory of someone like emmanuel macron i think that'll actually give um you know some of these southeast asian countries certainly a boost of confidence that you know you'll have a uh, permanent five power at the UN Security Council still kind of vested in the regional security status quo. Um, you know, I think a big part of the Shangri-La dialogue speech last year was really underpinned in this idea of the slippery slope problem and the erosion of international norms. And that's something I think European states are acutely aware of um, after the 2014 annexation of Crimea, which I think, you know, in the post-Cold War era really affirmed, um, I mean, especially with the 2008 war with Georgia, where we saw some of that out of Russia, but, you know, outright annexing and changing the borders in Western Europe, I think, a lot of European states. Um, and I think a big part of, you know, France's insistence and the EU's insistence that, you know, China um, and the Philippines respect the outcome, for example, of the July 12th ruling in 2016 by the Permanent Court of Arbitration-based tribunal on the South China Sea was kind of based in that kind of logic that if uh, if China is allowed to, you know, change the rules of the road in the South China Sea, um, you know, stall the conclusion of a code of conduct with its ASEAN partners, um, all of that, you know, it's just contributing to this kind of slippery slope, what some uh, analysts in the Asian context have called, you know, China's salami slicing, um, more broadly speaking. Uh, so, you know, having someone like Macron potentially went out, I think, would um, offer a degree of reassurance that um, France, at least, um, would remain, you know, one of... I guess the only status quo power in a sense. I mean, I mean, Theresa May in the UK after Brexit um, obviously have their priorities um, a bit, um, you know, elsewhere with uh, trade deals and everything like that. So um, I yeah. think, you know, that's actually a pretty critical point, I think. Um, so, you know, France is kind of this uh, swing player right now on the global stage. And that's certainly true in the Asia Pacific. Exactly. And I think uh, if, if we see that outcome, um, that would actually be very heartening in terms of this broader debate that we're having in terms of you know populist movements versus the establishment because it would show that it, it not necessarily has to be you know sort of a, a battle between extremes uh, there is a centrist alternative um, and that you know addressing the domestic uh, economic uh, and social needs of the population uh, doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of an active globalist foreign policy which is I think what some of these Asian states fear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, the good news is that we don't have to wait too long to get our answer on uh, where <laughs> France is going to go. Um, so we'll certainly be able to follow all this up. Uh, Prashant, you know, um, we didn't have you on the show when you were traveling, um, but I really wanted to get your thoughts um, on this upcoming summit, which has now been confirmed by both China and the United States between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, which I think is one of the most highly anticipated leaders meetings this year. Um, so they'll be meeting at Mar-a-Lago, um, not in Washington, D.C., kind of replicating the uh, Sunnylands model from 2013 when Obama and Xi met in an informal setting to talk about the big questions in international affairs um, between their two countries. So, uh, you know, what's your uh, expectation for this meeting? What are you looking to see from Trump? What do you think the Chinese are looking for from Trump? Um, you know, how how do you think this is all going to go down? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the conversation in, in, in Washington is sort of, um, you know, uh, centered around what, what kind of bargain, what kind of deal will these two leaders be, be able to strike? I think the Chinese are hoping that um, from their perspective, if they can give Trump uh, a few things, you know, maybe a few business deals, uh, things that might satisfy him domestically, uh, maybe he'll ease up a little bit um, after kind of a rocky start uh, in the bilateral relationship. So I, I think there is that substantive focus. And obviously, 
uh, North Korea, uh, South China Sea, I'm sure will be discussed. But I think from from my perspective, I'm interested in two things beyond this. Um, one is, you know, what kind of personal relationship will these two leaders strike? Um, you know, they strike me as two very different personalities, to put it politely. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, you know, this is their first interaction face to face. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, the second is, um, you know, I, it's important to stress the fact that um, countries in the region are really looking to this summit as an indicator of how they should structure their policies uh, more broadly around the United States, China, and, uh, and you know, the, the, the region more generally, because they've gotten a lot of contradictory signals from the Trump administration so far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it started out with uh, this idea that they would question nearly every single assumption in the U.S.-China relationship that's existed for decades. Um, And then now sort of swung to the other extreme where Trump would be willing to strike a deal with the Chinese on North Korea and a few other things and throw Asian nations under the bus on a number of issues, whether it's, you know, South China Sea um, and even some of the alliance relationships and put that at stake. I mean, I don't think that this is the outcome that we'll eventually see. Um, but the fact that there's so much uncertainty means that um, when Trump and, uh, meets with Xi, he really has to think about the regional angle and how the optics of that is going to be perceived. Because this is happening very early on in the administration where there's so much uncertainty around Asia policy. Um, so the way that this meeting plays out will have a great bearing on uh, how the administration is perceived uh, in terms of its engagement more generally in the region. No, certainly. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, I think that recommendation you gave is going to fall on on deaf ears. I mean, uh, just an hour before we recorded this, uh, Trump uh, took to Twitter, as he likes to do, to uh, say the meeting next week with China will be a very difficult one in that we can no longer have massive trade deficits and job losses. American companies must be prepared to look at other alternatives. So on Twitter, you know, I said that this was his opening offer. Um, so I actually have a copy of The Art of the Deal. I'm admitting that publicly on the podcast. And, you know, this is something that he talks about you know, in the past, you know, when he's plotting himself as a great deal maker. He says he always likes to kind of come out with the first offer and he likes to put it down. Um, so that to me, you know, I mean, if there's any strategy behind it, again, I don't know. It, it, it suggests to me that this administration might be looking to turn this into a discussion on trade. Um, since, you know, I mean, there's a big uh, domestic audience signaling aspect to talking to the Chinese leader, for Trump especially. I mean, if if the White House can walk away with a statement that says that, you know, Trump was very strong on trade and he told China that, you know, he'd um, crack down on enforcement, which is something we've actually heard about from, uh, you know, people like Wilbur Ross, um, Lighthizer, who still hasn't been confirmed, and um, even the Treasury Secretary, uh, Steve Mnuchin. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's something that I can see. One of the things that's interesting, I think, is, uh, you know, we have all the satellite imagery coming out of Pongyeri, the North Korean nuclear testing site, suggesting that something's imminent. So if the North Koreans decide to test during the summit, I mean, they tested a missile during the Abe Trump summit at Mar-a-Lago. They, uh, last year, you know, they really pissed China off by testing three missiles off during the Hangzhou G20 meeting. So they clearly don't care about China's diplomatic calendar and are, uh, you know, willing to butt into any sort of summit uninvited. So that's, again, another possibility that I think could really um, make things a bit more interesting. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, your, your point about um, the opening deal is important because I think Trump uh, has this idea and uh, still continues to maintain the fact that having these very bold opening positions um, is, is the way to go and they can be moderated later on. But, you know, there's a number of problems with this. I mean, the, the, the main one, it seems to me, is that Um, countries will have to wait to see how that eventually plays out. Um, You know, the Chinese are worried, for example, that 
um, you know, after the summit is when Trump will actually sort of roll out some of the more hardline initiatives, right? Whether it's Taiwan arms sales, uh, freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea that are very publicly announced. Um, and the region is worried that, you know, after this summit is when things will get really rocky um, in the U.S.-China relationship, whether it's in the economic or security domain. Um, you know, there have been a number of countries, and I mentioned this in a, in a piece that I recently wrote, that, um, you know, there's still this idea that uh, Trump will strike this deal with the Chinese and abandon uh, U.S. allies and partners, even though it seems like he's getting along really well with Japan right now. Um, you know, even the Japanese are worried that at some point, you know, there still remains a possibility that if the price is right, Trump will turn. So the, there is a, a sort of cost to this deal-making approach that Trump is adopting. Uh, although, as you correctly pointed out, I'm not quite sure if this uh, logic will actually appeal uh, to Trump himself or whether he'll be actually a, well, I don't think he's listening to the podcast, but <laughs> even if his advisors uh, were to mention it to him, I'm not sure whether he will uh, he will adopt uh, the advice, considering the fact that for him, I mean, he won the election. So Yeah, no, you know, I mean, we've talked about the America first grand strategy on this podcast before. And, you know, the more I think about it, you know, another part of that, I think, is uh, that this administration and not only Trump, but uh, to an extent, Tillerson, um, you know, they show an interest in, you know, great power politics, kind of the old school, uh, you mm -hmm. know, Kissinger-esque approach to international relations. Um, I mean, you know, you look at this story of Tillerson. I mean, they changed the date now, but originally he was going to miss the NATO foreign ministers meeting, but he was going to do a trip to Russia later that month. I mean, it's just that, um, you know, I think they see the value of um, the international system um, primarily being, you know, moderated by big countries, powerful countries. And I think China certainly fits into that mold. And um, that's, I think, an area where the Chinese might find that their older concept, you know, the great power, uh, the new type of great power relations concept might uh, come back to play. That's actually something Shannon and I talked about a lot last week because there were, you know, there was a bit of anxiety among some U.S.-China watchers that Tillerson used kind of Chinese phrasing when he was in Beijing. Um, but, but, you know, I don't want to relitigate that discussion again. Um, so since it gets into some of the arcane uh, nitty-gritty of um, U.S.-China yeah. ties. But, you know, there is that real concern, uh, as you said, that this administration could um, pivot towards a very kind of transactional approach with China where everything's up for deals. Uh, you know, even the 23 million people of Taiwan, their fate is up for bargaining. Um, so yeah. that's, uh, again, a real possibility that, that I don't think, you know, Asian countries are comfortable enough to rule out yet. Exactly. And a lot of this you know, uh, important to stress is, is still in flux. You know, um, it, it, there's this sort of weird coexistence in some sense between the the geopolit uh, geopolitics first approach that you highlighted, which is the focus on big countries. But then also, how does that uh, link up with the focus on the Islamic State, you know, sort of this transnational movement um, as being the key threat uh, to U.S. foreign policy? And then also on, on the bilateral, multilateral front. Um, you know, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, Trump would have said that he would, and it's, it remains unclear whether he will actually do it, but that he would even commit to attending a NATO summit <laughs> later this year. So, uh, you know, really interesting times <laughs> for U.S. foreign policy. Certainly, certainly, Prashant. Um, well, I think we'll uh, wrap things up for there. How's that sound? Sounds good. Great. Well, um, thanks for joining me, Prashant. And um, to our listeners, as always, thanks for listening. 
Um, we'll hopefully be back next week with more. Uh, but Prashant and I are both actually going to be traveling soon, so uh, we might be on a bit of an off-kilter schedule in April. So apologies in advance for that, but we'll certainly revisit the she uh, trump Summit after uh, that goes down uh, next week. In the meantime, uh, if you like the podcast, uh, leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. That really helps. And if you really, really like the podcast, please do subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and can keep up with the latest. And as always, if you're interested in having us address something on the show that you haven't heard yet, uh, definitely drop either of us a note. We're happy to include it. I actually think I saw the France um, and Asia topic come up once in my Twitter feed um, a while ago. So uh, we got around to it, but it took a while. So um, definitely happy to do that again in the future. Thanks for listening.